0: If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to the book of Exodus. Everyone say Exodus. If you don't know where Exodus is, the very first book of the Bible, for those of you who know, is? Genesis. And the next book of the Bible is? So it goes Genesis, Exodus, so it's near the beginning of your Bible. Go ahead and put them down. Put them down. Chill out, Tommy. I know you're excited about talking about Alaska. All right, here we go. We're about to jump into a series on the book of Exodus. One more more time, everyone say Exodus. But before we jump into the story of Exodus, I want to give some context for what's happened in the Bible thus far. Okay, so we got the book of Genesis. Everyone say Genesis. And Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the we got some, some scripture breathers. Let's go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we see in Genesis chapter 1, the start of creation. The start of all things. We see that God m- makes things by speaking into existence. All of a sudden, it's like planets and stars and moon, and animals, all this super dope stuff. And then we get to day six, where we have mankind being made. Now, God didn't just speak mankind into existence, but he actually says to, to the other members of the Trinity, this is like a whole theological conversation, we don't need to get into it, but God says, let us make man in our own image. Let us make man in our own image to kind of to resemble what God is like. The personality, the character, let us make man in our own image. And God comes down from heaven, comes down to earth, and he forms the man. He forms the man and breathes life into his nostrils. I don't know if that'd be weird, like for like God to breathe into your nose. Like in some points, like He just brought me to life, so it's awesome. And in some ways, it's like kind of weird. But God brings Adam to life and makes Eve, so He's not alone. And this is what we see in the Book of Genesis. And God wants shh, no talking. And God wants relationship with His people. Everyone say relationship. And so we see that God, he'd walk in the garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And all things were amazing. All the animals were happy. I can see, like, if I was Adam, I'd be, like, riding lions and, like, having the time of my life. Because everything's perfect. There's no death. There's no suffering. But then we have the fall. Everyone say the fall. The fall. We're not talking about the season. We're talking about an event in the Bible. The fall happens and sin enters the world the thing that is so opposite of God, the thing that separates us from relationship with God, Adam and Eve sin by disobeying God, and they stop loving him wholeheartedly, and they eat the forbidden fruit. Okay, tracking with the story so far. So that's the first three chapters of Genesis. Creation, and it doesn't take long for mankind to mess it up and sin. But then, as we go throughout the book of Genesis, a key point is in Genesis chapter 12 with a man named... Abram. Everyone say Abram. Now, if you want to sound like a Hebrew scholar, I learned this in college, that in Hebrew, there's no, like, ah sound in the alphabet. It's like how, like, us Americans are like Abraham. Like, that's not a thing in Hebrew. It's all like ah. So it would be like Avraham. Everyone say Avraham. You, you guys sound super epic. But we see that God comes to this man named Abram. I love y'all's energy, but go ahead and bring it down a little bit. Um, so we have this man named Abram, and God comes to this man, Abram, and says that he wants to make a covenant with him. Everyone say covenant. God wants to make a covenant with this man, Abraham, and he says that I will be your God and I will be faithful to you, and if, and if you will serve me as your God, we'll, we'll have this relationship going, we'll have this covenant. Covenant is like the language of marriage. It's two people like promising to be loyal to each other, to be there for each other. It's this close relationship. And so God, go ahead and and he initiates and pursues Abram and makes a covenant. And then we have the good old song, My Father Abraham and many sons and many, yeah, and so on and so forth. But we see that God makes this promise to Abraham that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars and that God will bless his people and they will bless the peoples of the earth. As we go throughout the generations, we have Abraham and his son's name is Okay, it's Isaac, a few of you got it. And then Isaac's son's name is Esau. Esau. We're not gonna talk about that guy. Jacob, everyone say Jacob. Jacob. (laughs) We're not going through Genesis, that's a whole other thing. But we have Jacob, who's otherwise known as Israel. Okay, his name is he's renamed as Israel, and he has 12 sons. Does anyone come from a family of like 12 kids? This is Elias, you do? Let's go. How many siblings you got? How many? You got 11 siblings? Okay, so you're exactly 12. Did you raise your hand? Did someone else raise their hand? No? Okay, how about like a family of 10? 10 is still pretty big, including yourself. Yeah? Okay, very nice. That sounds absolutely insane to me. I can't imagine the wildness of their house. It would be like having all of you guys in their house, like all at the same time. It would be crazy. But we see that Israel, or Jacob, has these 12 sons, one of which being Joseph. And we have the story of Joseph that takes place at the end of Genesis, and to give a quick summary, basically, Joseph is like basically the youngest child because like the actual youngest doesn't come along for a while. And so Joseph is like the super spoiled youngest child. Any youngest children in the room? Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. You know, some of you are like, I'm the only child. So I'm the oldest, the middle, and the youngest, something like that. But youngest child, I'm the youngest in my family. I'll admit it, I got less spankings and I got spoiled. It was a good life, it was a good life. But, so Joseph is like his dad's favorite, which if you know anything about how that typically works, usually that means your other brothers or sisters don't really like you very much if you're like the parent's favorite. You never get in trouble, all that stuff. And so what happens to Joseph, in the logical way that any older sibling would do if they don't like their younger sibling, they sell him into slavery, right? (laughs) Just kidding, I hope none of you... Listen to me, none of you sell your sibling into slavery. All right, none of you do that. But we see that Joseph is sold into slavery in a land called Egypt. And now this is important. Shh, everyone listen, everyone listen. So Joseph, through slavery, is taken to Egypt and eventually there's a famine and his brothers have to come to Egypt for food, which is super awkward because it's like, hey, remember when you sold me into slavery and now you want food? Ah, this is, haha. It's like the awkward, like Spider-Man, like me and they're pointing at each other. It's like awkward moment at the top. But we see at the end of Genesis that the Israelites, the people, the, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're growing and they are in the land of Egypt. Everyone say Egypt. So now this is where we pick up in Exodus chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to verse 7. Exodus 1 verse 7. I'd love for you guys on these Wednesday nights, bring your Bibles, bring notebooks, bring something to take notes on stats show that you'll remember like 5% of what I say in like a week or two from now, which is just sad for me. But go ahead and like take notes as much as you can to remember what the Lord's speaking to you during services. But we have Exodus 1. Basically the first six verses tell us kind of a review of the names of the sons of Israel. Then it says that Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation passed away. So now we have a new generation. Verse 7, it'll be up on the screens. It says, but the people of Israel were fruitful And increased greatly, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Verse 8. This is where a huge shift in the story happens. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Everyone say heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities Pithom and Rameses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So we see here the favor of God, right? Where we have the promise of God to Abraham that he will make his descendants as numerous as the stars, that he's going to bless them and be with them. And so we see that even in the midst of harsh slavery, that God actually helps the Israelites continue to grow, to be fruitful, to to, to multiply, to be a mighty people. So even in the midst of persecution and slavery, we see that God continues to bless the people of Israel. Let's keep on moving to verse 13. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. That's like your parents giving you chores. No, I'm just kidding. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then we go to verse 15. Are you guys still tracking me? Give me a thumbs up if you're tracking. Let's go. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whose name was Shiprah, and the other Puah, when you guys have a daughter in 20 years, name her Pua. Great name. Super awkward and weird. The other name's Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and set them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. So Pharaoh's telling these, these women that are meant to help with childbirth for the Hebrews that if it's a boy, don't let the, the baby boy live to kill him. But then we see... In verse uh, 17, it says, but the midwives feared God. Everyone say, feared God." God. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Verse 18, so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. I have recently discovered that verse 19 is one of the funniest verses in the Bible. Just wait a second when I read this. Okay, get ready. The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. This is so weird. I read this the other day, and I was like, so basically, either, like, the midwives are telling Pharaoh, like, like a lie to protect the kids, or they're, they're, it's actually a true story. And, like, the Hebrew women are just, like, they give birth to babies, like, super fast. Like, they're just beasts and, like, push them out. And they're, they're, like, they're not like the Egyptian women, man. Like, these are things in the Bible. It's like. Oh, okay, cool. good, good detail. But this is scripture. Verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families. So once again, shh, we see the blessing of God to the people of Israel. He helps them grow and to multiply and to be strong. But then the turn happens for the worse. Go into the next verse, verse 22. It says, then Pharaoh, the, the king of Egypt, commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, I want you guys to think about this for a second. Think about this for a second. I don't know if you guys have like any like baby siblings, but think about how awful and disgusting this command is. Like sometimes we, we read the Bible and it becomes so common. Like we hear the story of Exodus, like, God in the Red Sea and all the babies being ordered to kill. And it's kind of like, oh, yeah, whatever. Like, think about, like, the weight of this. Like, a little, a tiny little baby, if it's a boy, has to be thrown into the Nile. We see this. Hey, guys, stop messing around, right? We see this, this harsh injustice from Pharaoh to the Hebrew people kill these newborn babies. So this is something that is incredibly tragic. As we move into Exodus 2, we see this baby by the name of Moses come on the scene. Everyone say Moses. All right, so we see that that his parents they, they marry and they have a baby named Moses. And it says that he is a beautiful looking kid. He's a good-looking newborn baby. Some newborn babies I feel like are like kind of not good looking. It's kind of like, oh, you're like, you look all red and weird. But apparently Moses, like cute, newborn baby. But because of the law of Pharaoh, his parents had to do something to keep Moses safe. Now, if everyone would turn your attention to the screens to get a little picture of what this would look like. Hush now, my baby, be still. you're rocked by the stream sleep and remember my last lullaby Come, Rameses. We will show Pharaoh your new baby brother. Moses. on (laughs) who's ever seen the prince of egypt that's like that's one of my big childhood movies y'all but it was not till like when i was watching this clip and i realized oh this is not actually the most like scripturally accurate story so i dare you to go back and reread exodus 1 and 2 and you'll see something very quickly of like oh my gosh, I should not build my theology on Prince of Egypt. I should probably read the Bible, which is a good thing. But I love, I love this movie, and um, that's probably the best basket ever made in human history. Like the top never came off. Amazing. But so we see this baby named Moses, and we'll see in next week's message how God calls Moses to go and deliver the people of Israel. But basically throughout the next uh, bit of Exodus 2, Moses grows up and he is kind of around Pharaoh's house. He still does have a relationship to his family, something you have to actually read scripture to find out, not watch the movie, which like blew my mind. But we see that, that eventually when Moses grows up, he sees, he sees the harsh slavery of the Israelites. And it leads, to this point, shh, it leads to this point where Moses, he ends up killing an Egyptian slaver because he was beating a Hebrew slave. And so for fear of his life, Moses runs into a land named Midian, and there he meets his wife and he has children, and he lives out in Midian while the people suffer. And this is the short passage I want us to really camp out in. is verses 23 through 25 in Exodus chapter two. If you have your Bibles, you're taking notes. Go and find that passage or write it down. Exodus 2 verses 23 through25. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham. God saw the people of Israel, and God New. Everyone close your eyes and bow your heads. Father God, we thank you so much that you are a God who sees us. And that you are a God who is never distant from us. And guys, as we started this series going through the book of Exodus, where we get to learn so many beautiful things about who you are, about what it looks like to be in relationship with a holy God. As we read about how you reveal yourself throughout this story, and how we find who we are as your people, as we know you more. I pray tonight that you would encourage every single person in this room and give us hope that you are not distant, that you are a God who hears us, who remembers your covenant with us, who sees us, and who knows us, who loves us. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. amen. As I was thinking about this story, I was thinking about how the people of Israel must have felt even within just the first one or two chapters of Exodus we see over and over and over that even just in these first few chapters that their slavery grows harsher and harsher and harsher this type of absolute injustice where there's the Egyptians this big dynasty and they are lording over they're lording over the the Israelites they're beating them they're they're putting them in harsh slavery it's, it's a sad story. It's a, it's a saddening story that we see throughout all of human history. The yoke of slavery and this, the brokenness of the world that we see even in this passage. When we get to the end of Exodus 2, we see this verse where it says that God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And so over the next few minutes, I want to tell you about why this passage carries such weight. Why this is so important for us to get. So I want you guys just to lean in for the next like 10 minutes as we, as we go through this. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Exodus 3 real quick. We're going to read a verse or, or a few verses from verses 7 through 9 in Exodus 3. This is kind of jumping ahead a little bit. It's like a spoiler alert for where we're going next week. But God shows up to Moses while he's in the land of Midian. And God has a conversation with Moses where he calls him to go and deliver the people. But this is what we get in verse 7. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Everyone say, I know. I know their sufferings. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up to a land, to, to, out, of the, out of that land, to a good and broad land. Go and skip down to verse 9 with me. It says, and now behold the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Now, when we read this verse, we it's kind of like a, maybe when we read it in English, it's kind of like a, oh, that's cute and all. Like God like hears, and he's like oh, like that's too bad for the Israelites. But if you know anything about the context of Scripture in the ancient world, you'd actually see that this passage would have been absolutely insane to to readers and to the ancient world. If you know anything, who knows what polythe, polytheism is. Okay, a few of you. Basically, it was, it was a, a theology system where they believed in many gods. So we, are, we believe in a monotheistic God, meaning there's one God who's over all things. They believed in a polytheistic culture. The Egyptians were. So that means that they had all these different gods. And basically the whole goal was that like, you had a god of the sun, a god of the moon, a god of the Nile River, all these things. And basically the goal, if you were someone living in Egypt at the time, was just don't make the gods mad. It was just try to do the right things and, and you know, make the right sacrifices and just live, live right so that the gods aren't mad at you and they don't, like, spite you and kill you right away. Okay? Like, that's, that's kind of what the ancient world was like. The gods were very impersonal. They were distant. Everyone say distant. And so even, even for God to come in, in this verse to talk about how God hears his people, how God remembers his covenant with his people, how God sees their suffering and God knows. This carries more weight than just someone being like, okay, like, I see Ryan. I kind of know Ryan. I, like, say hi. Okay, I hear Ryan and, like, I remember that, like, my relationship with Ryan is, like, he's a student in, like, the youth group. Okay, cool. Like, it's, it's so much more than that. So we see that God who is high above an almighty God. As we go through Exodus, we'll see how powerful and incredible God is. That he shows that he is far more powerful than any, any polytheistic gods. As we go throughout this story, God shows how high he is. But also in this story, it shows how low he comes. He comes low to his people. He hears their cry. Everyone say, God hears. God hears They're crying. This is what this means. The book of Exodus shows us what the old covenant was made of, which is God having a relationship with his people. Okay, God calling a people and having covenant with them. In the same way, if you are a Christian in this room, raise your hand if you're a Christian in this room. Awesome. You've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That means that in the new covenant, you have relationship with God. That means you are his son. You are his daughter. So what, that? what does that mean? It means that God is a God who hears your cry. Now, everyone look at me. Everyone look at me. I know that for some of you in this room, you're going through difficult things in life. Maybe you're, you're dreading going back to school because you've been bullied in the past or you, you have a really tough family relationship. Your, your parents aren't doing well or you struggle with your siblings. You're, you're dealing with something really difficult. Hey, fellas right here. Hey, I'm not going to tell you guys again. You need to stop messing around because you're distracting everyone, okay? I love you guys, but I need you guys to, be, to go higher. Okay, thank you. And so maybe some of you guys are really going through some difficult things. And I want you guys to hear this, that God hears your cry for help. That God is not distant and far off and being like, oh, it's too bad for them. They'll get through it. No, no, no. When you cry out and you say, God, I need you. Man, I'm struggling and I need help. God hears your cry. He's not far off. The second thing we see through this is that God remembers his covenant. Everyone say covenant. Covenant is something that we don't really know about in our culture. We, we have these things called contracts where, you know, there's a contract for marriage or a contract for like a business move. And, and basically what's a, the thing about a contract is that it can be easily broken. We see that the divorce rate is just about 50% of all couples that get married, 50% of them get divorced. It's, it's seen as a cheap contract that they can just, you know what, I don't really want to be married to this person. It's okay. I'm ripping up the contract. I'll pay some money. It's whatever. Or I'm, I'm getting out of this. That we, and contracts are cheap, but covenant with God is eternal. Everyone say eternal. So when we enter into relationship with God in the new covenant through the blood of Jesus, what this means is that God is continually faithful to you. And guess what? Even when you forget God, even when you stop acknowledging who he is, God remembers his covenant with you. He's not gonna forget about you. He's not he's not leaving you off and saying, Okay, well, you know, once they get their act together, then I'll let them come to me. No, no, no. God remembers his covenant and he wants relationship with his people. So God remembers his covenant. Then we see that God sees. Everyone say God sees. So once again, God is not a distant God who can't hear his people. God is so close that he can see his people. God's not, like, he just got, like, this super huge, like, camera lens that sees, like, over the world. Or, like, a cool, like, Google Maps, like, image of, like, isn't it? It's kind of weird, like, when you look in Google Maps, you can, like, find someone's house. Like, I, I find that terrifying. I don't know if you guys knew you could do that. But it's, like, God's not up, like, with a satellite on Google Maps being, like, an overhead look. God can see all that, and God is so big and so sovereign and so powerful. He holds all things together, but he also sees you. He sees you. He knows what's going on in your life. He cares about what's going on in your life. God sees. And lastly, we see that the verse says in at the end of um, sorry, I lost my place. At the end of Exodus 2, it says, And God knew. Everyone say God knew. Now, this is kind of like a weird, a weird like, verb in, in English, because I can say, like, I know, I know Nate. I can also say, like, yeah, like, I know LeBron James. <laughs> Some of you just actually started paying attention. You were like, stop. You know LeBron James. Can I introduce, give me an autograph. No, no, no. But I don't know LeBron James personally. Now I could tell you about, like, how he's not the goat, that Michael Jordan is better all time. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I had to throw it in there. I had to throw it in there. But I could tell you about how many championships he's won, how many all-star games. I could tell you what team he plays for now. Like, I could tell you about LeBron James, but I don't know LeBron James, okay? So this word to know doesn't really mean much. In the same way, I can say, like, I know my wife or I know my, my brother. It's like, that's a much more of like an intimate knowledge than like knowing LeBron James. Like, I know about LeBron. But, like, I know my, my wife and my family, right? It's like, it's a close relationship. And in, and in the original Hebrew, when it says that God New. It means so much more than God just kind of from like three thousand feet away is kind of like, oh yeah, I heard that the the Israelites are having a really tough go and getting enslaved. Ah, too bad. Like he's not like reading the newspaper and like finding out. No, no, no. the word "no" in Hebrew is this word "yada." Everyone say "yada," "yada." It sounds like Yoda. That's all I can hear. I'm a Star Wars fan. But we have this word yadah, which means it means to know, but it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean what we think in English. And pay attention, just a few more minutes. This word, "yada" to know in Hebrew, actually means to have deep knowledge with, of, like, of someone that you enter into covenant with. So it's not just a knowledge about, but it's actually knowing everything about that person. It's knowing their every thought, their every care, their every struggle, their every prayer request, everything in their life, the things that they love, the things that they hate. To say that God knows us means he knows every single thing about you. He knows every single thing about you, which means he's not distant and far off. It means that he actually cares to know everything about your life. He cares to know about, hey, like, what are you struggling with today? Hey, I'm, I'm with you through it. Hey, what, what's what been, like, the best part of your week? What's been the best part of your summer? Guess what? Like, God cares so much more than your best friend or anyone in your family. Like, God cares so, so much. When it says that God knew, it shows not that God is distant, far off, but God has intimate knowledge with his people. Everyone say God knew. I want to invite JLo and Miana to go ahead and come up and lead us in worship. Friends, as we talk through, <laughs> we can clap for them. We love j and Miana. As we talk about this passage, and then we go throughout the book of Exodus. We see so many beautiful pictures for what Christ has done for us. In, in, in um, Exodus 1, we see how it says that the Egyptians set harsh taskmasters over the Hebrews. And that these, these, these slavers afflicted the Hebrews, and they, and they treated them cruelly. Okay, They, they afflicted heavy burdens on these people. And that's a really good picture of what sin does in our lives. When we are disconnected from Jesus, when we're stuck in living in the sinful conditions of our world, it's like a, like a harsh taskmaster. It's a heavy burden on us. Everyone look at me. Everyone look at me. Jalen and Mian are awesome. But look at me. When we look at this story in Exodus, we see a beautiful picture of what God does for us. That just like in this story, we see God intervenes into the slavery and the brokenness of the Hebrews. We see that God intervenes into you and I's life. Romans 5 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died died for us. That means that even in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our own sin that separates us from God, and even in the midst of living in a broken world and and being devastated by difficult things in our families or difficult things going on around us or not wanting to go back to school or whatever it is in your life, everyone look at me. What we can learn from this passage is that God cares about us. God cares. So this is what I want us to do. I want everyone to stand up and come towards the front or kind of fill out over here. I want us to get down on our knees. Jacob, if you can bring the lights down. Nobody talking, nobody talking. This is a special moment. This is what I want to do just for the next few minutes. We're going to sing a song of us crying out to the Lord. It's going to be crying out to the Lord. And as we do this, I don't want us to go through the motions. Wasting our time if we're here just to go through the motions. Church is pointless if we're just showing up just for whatever. It's not why we're here. But as we sing this song to the Lord, this is what I want to challenge you to do this evening. I want you to come to the Lord tonight with the heavy burdens that you're carrying. I want you to come to the Lord with your struggles and the things in which you are suffering through right now. So often we think that when we come to God, we have to be put together. We have to pray the right words, sing the right words, do the right thing, jump a lot, lift our hands a lot. Can I tell you something, Junior High? God cares so much more about your heart than anything that you do. He could care less if you show up to church and lift your hands for all 30 minutes of worship. If your heart's checked out, if you're not truly giving him your struggles and your emotions and the things that you're dealing with, that grieves his heart. He wants relationship with you. We see in the book of Exodus that God's heart is broken. God's heart is broken when he sees his people, his chosen people, the Israelites, enduring suffering. And everyone look at me. I want you to know that God's heart is broken for when you go through suffering. When you go through difficult things, God's heart is moved. And he's sitting there and, he's, and he wants you to know tonight, I hear you. I hear you as you cry out. I hear you. He wants you to know that That he remembers his covenant with you that he's not going to let you down. Hebrews 13 says, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's who God is. That even when you are unfaithful to God, when you go miles away from him, when you stop seeking him, God continues to be faithful to you. Because he remembers his covenant towards you. God sees you. The things that you're going through are not hidden from him. He knows. And God knows you. God knew you before you were ever born. It's trippy. But God, He's outside of time. He knows the beginning and the end and everything in between. He knew that you'd be in this room tonight with the people that you're around. He knew what you'd be struggling with. He knew what you'd love doing. He knew. He knows everything about your life. And not just what you do, but He knows about your heart in your mind and what's going on and what's difficult so this is what I want us to do I want you to pray this prayer if you really mean it I want you to say Heavenly Father thank you for caring for me thank you for never leaving me thank you for never forsaking me that even in the midst of my struggles even when I'm unfaithful to you thank you that you are faithful to me. So I give you my heart tonight. I give you my emotions. I give you my thoughts. I give you my brokenness. Help me to know that you are near. In Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and stay where you're at. Don't talk to your friend for the next few minutes. We're just going to sing a song, and I want you to bring your brokenness and your cries to the Lord tonight.